Hi there, listeners and fellow higher education leaders and transformers. I wanted to thank you for tuning into the podcast over the last year and listening to the episodes. I'm forever grateful for your continued support. I can't believe we have released our Golden Jubilee episode. I'm so grateful for all the conversations with thought leaders, disruptors, and entrepreneurs on this podcast. Most importantly, I feel so privileged to learn from these discussions and illuminate myself in in the process, albeit very slowly, I might add. If you like this podcast, I have a feeling you will love N2N's premier event, N Squared. At this event, we feature prominent thought leaders and disruptive entrepreneurs transforming higher education. For more information, visit nsquared.events. I look forward to seeing you in Atlanta, Georgia on February 24, 2022. That's next year. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Illuminate Higher Education Podcast. Today is Illuminate's 50th episode. We started this in November 2020 as part of my reaction to the pandemic and how I can learn from other leaders and transformative guests on the podcast. Since then, I've interviewed several chancellors, presidents, and other leaders like entrepreneurs, for-profit, non-profit, and the like. But today, I have a guest that is perfect for our Golden Jubilee episode. Ben Nelson is the founder of Minerva. He's a visionary with a passion to reinvent higher education. Prior to Minerva, Nelson spent more than 10 years at Snapfish, where he helped build the company from startup to the world's largest public personal publishing service. With over 42 million transactions across 22 countries, nearly five times greater than its closest competitor, Snapfish is among the top e-commerce services in the world. Serving as CEO from 2005 to 2010, Nelson began his tenure at Snapfish by leading the company's sale to Hewlett-Packard for $300 million. Prior to joining Snapfish, Nelson was the president and CEO of Community Venture, a network of locally branded portals for American communities. Ben Nelson's passions for reforming undergraduate education was first sparked at the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School, where he received a BS in economics. After creating a blueprint for curricular reform in his first year of school, Nelson went on to become the chair of the Student Committee on Undergraduate Education, pedagogical think tank that is oldest and only non-elected student government body at the University of Pennsylvania. Ben, welcome to Illuminate Higher Education Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. So it's so great to have you. I've I've heard you on Matt Alex's Clubhouse, and I've seen some of your writings and on your website of Minerva Education as well. And it is very obvious that you're passionate to reinvent higher education. And I want to talk to you about a little bit about this, because you write in your bio, I talked about the fact that you are a product of UPenn's Wharton School. My son is a high school graduate and he's a senior in high school and Wharton is one of the top three institutions that he seeks to get into. And I went to University of Illinois, Chicago myself. I love my school. I love my alma mater. I owe a lot to it. However, there's a lot of discussion on LinkedIn or Facebook or Twitter about how higher education needs to change and the current model is Some people call it everything from broken to bankrupt. And I always cringe at those discussions because while I want to reinvent higher education, I don't want it to become 
completely workforce-based or vocation-based. Mm -hmm. But that's enough said about what I think. What I want to hear from you is, what do you think are some of the systemic deficiencies or gaps for the current model of higher education? And how should somebody go about thinking about reinventing it or transforming it? Yeah, I think that is ultimately the false dichotomy that exists in the debate in higher education. And that false dichotomy is, should higher education be vocational? Should it just teach you to be an accountant, a lawyer, a doctor, et cetera? Or should it be there to educate you for the sake of education, knowledge for knowledge's sake, basically to be useless? And that battle of what is in theory pre-professional versus useless is an absurd argument. Because first and foremost, at least the American higher education system in its structure has theoretically made the decision to not do either, even though what effectively happens is that all American institutions of higher education are effectively vocational institutions. Even the useless parts aren't actually useless. They're pre-professional programs to be professors. That actually is what the university ultimately is. In fact, even the vocational bits of the traditional four-year highly selective to non-selective colleges are really just teaching you how to be getting into graduate school so you can eventually be a professor. They don't actually relate to the real world. I mean, if you actually even think about Wharton, right, and look at, at what Wharton teaches you, it teaches you academic disciplines of business. You don't actually use in business. It's certainly not the way that they're being taught. So even the- Are you saying business ethics are academic? If only it was being taught, but they're not. They're taught in an academic way. They're not actually practical. And this battle isn't, Stupid battle. It doesn't even make any sense. Because what universities should be doing, if you think about, again, the American system, you cannot study to be a lawyer as an undergraduate in the American system. You can do that in the British system. Right? You can do it in India. You can do it in China. But in the United States, to be a lawyer, a doctor, a veterinarian, a dentist, those vocational traits come in the graduate programs. The undergraduate programs are supposed to teach you what the founding fathers of the United States refer to as practical or useful knowledge, knowledge that you can apply no matter what you go into. So it rejected this whole idea of knowledge for the sake of knowledge, right? That, that the education system is really a hobby, right? That helps you be more interesting in cocktail conversations. But it also rejected this idea that you learn a craft or a trade primarily because in a democracy, at least in a free society, most likely you don't just do one thing. You don't just run a store or a pharmacy or farm or bake. You also, at the very least, have to make decisions on how to govern by voting. And before participatory democracy, you didn't have to worry about that. You just had to farm or bake or run your store or run your pharmacy, right? And so the entire conception of a free world depends on you being able to transfer wisdom from your profession to a non-professional pursuit. And of course, these days, 
we almost certainly aren't going to be in a profession. We have to transfer that wisdom, not just for our civic duty, but for our career, from one profession to another, from one industry to another, from one sector to another. And by the way, also in all of our very complex interpersonal relationships and interactions. And so the concept of what a university education should be is more important than ever. But the reality is that no university actually teaches any of these things, including my alma mater. So unfortunately, though your son may think that Wharton is a, a great option being his top three, he's going to get a very bad education if he goes there. Let's keep the son discussion aside, because I want to talk to you about the knowledge for knowledge's sake. I went to, in India, a bachelor in pharmacy, and a lot of my education or pedagogy is all about the medicinal chemistry or pharmacology, pharmacognosy. Unfortunately, I don't use any of those stuff. I'm now a tech entrepreneur. I can't tell you the medicinal name of paracetamol or Tylenol to save my life. But keeping that aside, I had to do a lot of my own self-undergraduate study after coming to the United States, basically getting into things like behavioral psychology or philosophy And I'll just stay on philosophy because I think that is the knowledge for knowledge sake that I think that has changed me from the core. When I started reading Plato's Republic on how Aristotle goes about discussing things like what is a just man? How does a just man behave? Or what is right and what is wrong and how those things are not white and black. So I think after discussing those, I felt the concept of nuance is so underestimated because people always think this is right this is wrong this is good this is evil this is republican this is democrat and that's it and the truth of the matter is none of them are real and they're all just juxtapositions we created and i feel like a good knowledge for the knowledge sake education which properly delivered properly managed can help a person become just like you said a good citizen and allow them to evaluate facts for the sake of facts, not just put themselves into a corner and justify their position. Is that the idealistic premise of American education if properly delivered? Well, what you described in the meat of your description is the idealistic version of an American education, but that is not what knowledge for the sake of knowledge is. What you described was practical knowledge. Right? It was, how do you think about nuance and ethics, making decision trade-offs, thinking about evaluating evidence? That's highly practical, as Franklin called it, or useful, as Jefferson called it, knowledge. That is a liberal art. Knowledge for knowledge's sake is taking a class about medieval gardens of Italy, because that happens to be the crazy decision that the professor decided to spend the rest of his life studying because it interests him. And it's kind of cool in his perspective. And that's the class that's offered. And it is completely and utterly useless. And it's not just useless because you can't learn and apply interesting analysis to that particular context. You can, but that's not how it's taught. It is taught from the view of context. Let's study the medieval gardens of Italy. And then the assumption is, is that as you study the analysis of those medieval gardens, how they were structured, why they were structured, the history and sociology associated with them, right, the aesthetics, that you will then be able to generalize those tools 
those analytical systems into other contexts. The only problem is the science is incontrovertible. Students do not do that. Humans cannot do that. The ability to transfer practical knowledge from one context to another when presented in context is de minimis to nothing. Is that really a linear connection though? For example, like I know what you're saying and I don't want to spend all the time on this, yeah. but when you look at, I'll go back to Plato's Republic, but because there's a big discussion on philosopher king in Plato's Republic. On one hand, you can say, well, why does it matter? Because we don't have kings anymore. We don't have autocrats. We don't have dictators. You know, who cares, right? But I could easily apply that discussion to saying, what is a philosopher entrepreneur would look like? What does a philosopher programmer would look like? It is so much of that is related. Taking your medieval garden example, if somebody wants to eventually become a landscape artist, 25 years from now, he'll probably say, my professor said, it might not be that contextual and direct, but is that knowledge going to eventually help a person when the situation arises? Or is some of this just purely just pedagogical for no obvious reasons? The likelihood that student becomes a landscape architect is very low. And if you think about it, if you're taking 30 courses in undergraduate, right, including 15 in a major, right? And so you're taking 15 courses and some of them are distributed across other things. The likelihood that you will take a random walk context into a future career is, again, statistically improbable. Let's put it that way. And the reality is that the way that most classes are conducted you don't recall what happened in your class, right? I mean, so I would bet you that if you were to take what you just said, well, you don't use your undergraduate studies, right, much at all. You studied pharmacology. If I were to give you every single test that you took as an undergraduate and got an A in, what grade do you think you would get on them today? F minus. <laughs> That's right. You will have forgotten everything. Right. And in fact, if I would have given you those same tests probably 20 years ago, you've probably also gotten an F minus because the reality is you didn't learn. You were certified. You passed the test. You jumped through a hurdle, but you didn't actually internalize that learning. Now, why did you internalize Plato? And you said you self-studied it. Right. right? right. It wasn't exactly. because you were in a class. It wasn't because you had to take a test. It's because you were engaged. Memory comes for free when you deeply process information. When you apply it, when you make and use associations, you retain it. Now, what's yeah. fascinating is you decided, hey, I'm going to go and learn this. You were engaged. You then thought about it and you said, wait a second, how could this apply in my real world? I bet you there are parts of Plato's Republic that you don't remember at all because you didn't think about them deeply. You didn't apply them. Yet there are these other parts that you did. And again, fascinating, it wasn't a class. So it wasn't like you had, oh, the part that I was tested on, I remembered. Well, clearly not. It was the parts that you engaged with. Now, if our educational system was actually structured in that way, if it actually said, oh, okay, here's a piece of practical knowledge, Here's a, an ethical way of approaching life. Now apply it. What are its limitations? How about this context? How does it work? And you do that intentionally. You don't do it in the silo of philosophy. You don't just keep it there. You apply it to politics. You apply it to 
interpersonal interaction, you apply it to business. Now you've exercised it enough in your mind where it retains. And that really is how education should be structured. Unfortunately, the American educational system has long abandoned even an attempt at that. And that was because it obliterated the idea of a core curriculum. Yeah. I think there's definitely a lot of merit to what you're saying. I think you're about philosophy. There's two parts of it, I think, that makes it very interesting. Number one is I was going through my own personal crises at that time, and I was looking for answers, and I came across philosophy. And the other part is I spent not a single dime other than the time I spent time on my Wi-Fi or whatever, on my mobile device, because it was all free. It was all available on YouTube or podcasts. So I think it was A, free and self-engaging and the fact that it was created. But, you know, I don't even know if I was presented the same knowledge or information when I was a 20-year-old hormone-filled teenager. I would have picked any of that. I would have thought this whole thing was stupid. So I want to kind of build on that because I think The thing I liked about that self journey is that there was so much content available. I'm not talking about Coursera or Udemy or edX. I'm talking about YouTube. I'm talking about podcasts. I'm talking about just free information that's available. And when you think about a person going into the self-paced learning model, there's so much resources available. And how do we make sense of that? How do we make sure that these resources can be built in such a way that a student or a person can learn a specific skill and most importantly, get a signal to use that to apply to a job or upskill themselves in the current job? Yeah, I think that's really the crux of the dynamic, right? Which is information is freely available. Right. And if you spend your time learning something, deeply thinking about it, applying it in multiple contexts, you should be able to pick that thing up. The problem is, what do you choose? And how do you go about doing all of these things? And by the way, are you sure that, as you talked about earlier, when you do it on your own, you get the nuance? Or do you very quickly jump to, oh, well, I saw that YouTube video and therefore that's the right answer? And therefore, I'm a this or I'm a that. And the reality is that if you think about the way learning should be structured, it really should be divided into three separate areas. Area number one is the acquisition of information, right? There's data that's fundamentally, I believe, a solo activity. Some people are faster on pickup than others. Others take a long time. I mean, I'm, for example, a slow reader. My wife is a fast reader, right? So if we were both to start the same book at the same time, she would finish before I would. If we were to sit in a class and said, okay, now read through this, you know, live, that wouldn't make any sense, right? She would be at a different location than I would. Other people can listen to videos at 1.75 times speed and understand every word. Other people need to listen to it at one time speed to, to understand every word. I mean, we just, there is just different ways of an uptake of information is clock speed, right? And so social learning for the dissemination of information is nonsensical. But the vast majority of learning at universities is information dissemination, right? The classroom, which doesn't make any sense. So again, self-study makes a lot more sense for that. Social learning 
is about nuance. It's not about black or white. It's about black or gray, right? Here are the things that are clearly wrong. And then here is the broad range of potentially correct approaches. Now let's talk about what is optimal in what situation and context and why, where there are differing opinions, right? What are the underlying assumptions of those opinions? How do you come up with a perspective? And that fundamentally is a hard thing to do on your own. Of course, there are some people that have natural gifts and can sit down and think through multiple perspectives and reason through everything. And those are, let's say, far fewer than 1% of the population, right? I mean, it's a, it's a very unique human being who's able to do that. And social learning, effectively, what a gathering of an expert-led conversation with a group of peers, traditionally known as a class, is ideally suited for, right? It's ideally suited for nuance once you have the fact basis to enable you to have an informed conversation. The most effective way of social learning is to actually take that fact basis, that information basis, and apply it, right? to actually go through and be challenged, grapple with problems, think through them, see how they work, etc. And then there's the third type of learning, which is the application in real-world contexts. Everything that you do in knowledge acquisition and social learning is by definition an abstraction, right? A model can only represent elements of what it is modeling. If it represented the entire thing that it is modeling would be a replica of that instantiation of the world. It is impossible, right? Even when you put on a play in a class, let's say, it's not the same as running a commercial play in a theater. That's a business. You have an audience. You have critics, right? The dynamics, you have different levels of stage fright, right? And so even that, even when you think, oh, yeah, I've already done a play in, in school. I'm not ready to do a play in, in the real world. They're different worlds because when you apply, you have all sorts of other systems that interact, right, to make the, the application a little bit different. And fundamentally, experiential, real-world applications are necessary for you to do your social learning better and for you to be more clever about your information acquisition. Yeah. Now, the way that we have access to information, if we just live in that first world... <laughs> We're going to all be sophomores, right? The Latin for the wise fool or the knowledgeable fool. That is where we are in the world today. This is why people take ivermectin for COVID and believe all sorts of nonsense because they see information, right? And they find corroboration for that information from sources they trust, which are all completely wrong. And they have no idea how to actually process that information. So how do you actually engage in that spectrum, you have to be able to approach that entire spectrum of learning. First, you have to have that entire spectrum curated for you. But secondly, you have to have the underlying tools, the operating system, if you will, that allows you to navigate those three areas. No, I think you're right. I'm pretty sure humans are always like this. But if you look at how we pursued 
civil war. At least the Union thought it was racist versus anti-racist and obviously secessionist thought of independence versus unionists, right? Because the truth is, even if you take a nuanced position, the truth is probably in the middle somewhere, two tribes fighting against each other, making their own position. So we're always like this. I think the place where we're getting more complicated, and I teach it to my kids all the time saying, don't accept it just because I say something. Back it up with evidence, evaluate the facts and evaluate the source of the facts and check your assumptions. And we do it all the time. And fortunately, Varun, my son runs his own podcast. So it kind of became a second nature for him. Like it, it came to head when I was trying to buy him an RDA3, where I was like trying to agree to whatever the dealer was saying on the price is like, he's immediately checking all the facts and saying, dad, this should be 21,000 <laughs> instead of 26,000, whatever. So the point being, they are becoming more information aware, but they need to be taught, if nothing else, to say, Look at your facts, look at your assumptions, make sure to ignore the facts that support your assumptions and give credit to the facts that are not contrary to assumptions, whether you're a flat earther or horse worm, constipation paste eater, check your facts. Don't just look at the facts that support you. But see, but, but this is the important thing because you have to have the techniques and tools to be able to check them accurately. And this is where systematic education comes in, right? Because if you actually had a higher education system or even a secondary education system that taught systematic thinking, which again, none of them except Minerva do, there are a lot of people who are told, be skeptical, check claims. That is actually where horse dewormer comes in. It's because they don't trust the government, right? They say, oh, there's a conspiracy over there. I'm skeptical. I'm smart, right? And then they say, well, I'm not going to believe what they say. I'm going to do my own checking and I check and I find this thing. So that's where I'm going. That, I mean, it's better than just blindly doing whatever anybody tells you, obviously, but it's not much better, right? And so exactly. the, the key is you have to be able to get to that next layer down yeah. and realize that thinking critically, even if you break it down to claim evaluation versus understanding inferences versus uh, making decision trade-offs, even when you get to that level, it's just not enough. You have to go a level deeper, right? You actually have to have a system or actually multiple systems of analyses that you can deploy such that you do the evaluations well and you understand all of the interaction effects. And that is just not something I've ever seen that can be taught without spending a significant amount of time and effort and structure. Yeah, I mean, I think you're absolutely correct. The, the act of thinking people think about, but the act of thinking about thinking, the metacognition yeah. is really hard. And it's probably something I would say, if you're a writer or a poet, or obviously a philosopher, you really have to do that because that's the only way you can get into another person's mind, whether it's a hunter or a robber or a murderer, and think about how this person has to resolve that. But you said something interesting that Minerva University does the systematic thinking. And I was reading up on you as per in preparation for this podcast on Minerva University, and I'm really intrigued by Minerva's mission. 
Minerva offers the most comprehensive approach to building customized learning programs in both online and hybrid settings. Our methodology is based on educational science, is supported by advanced digital technology, and focused on developing durable, broadly applicable skills, the same competencies needed for success in school, the workforce, the society at large. Sounds very grand and sounds almost impossible to believe, but you know, in the last 25 minutes, I understood who you are and the depth of your knowledge. I want to hear from you firsthand on how you go about doing something like this, whether it is teaching metacognition or systematic decision-making or customized learning programs. The reality is that despite the fact that Minerva is unique, there really is no other system of learning like it. The components that make it unique are not that difficult. Now, they require a lot of work. They require years of tuning. They require different mind shift. They require vastly different implementation. And so the difficulty is actually the adoption and, and thinking through it. But once you are in the Minerva universe, right, the ability for an institution to shift from what they're doing to what they should be doing, it's not a high-risk activity, let's put it that way. Why is that? Because fundamentally, you have to only accept three things about the correct way of engaging a learner. And those three things have one implication. That's it. So the first thing is that if you want to teach metacognitive tools that you can apply broadly, you have to create a curriculum that spans a long time, doesn't happen overnight, assuming that your goal is ambitious, meaning you don't want to teach one metacognitive tool, you want to teach dozens of them, right? So you have to introduce them, you have to make sure that students understand the basic mechanics of each of those tools. And then you have to create cross-contextual application opportunities throughout the curriculum. Initially, explicitly, take tool one, apply it in field one, field two, field three. Then implicitly, hey, now you're in field four. Hmm, like here's an obvious example of applying a tool. What tool do you think should be applied there? And do that in field five and field six. And then start exposing gnarly difficult problems in field seven, eight, and nine, where students can originally apply that learning. That's what we refer to as a cross-contextual scaffolded curriculum, right? And unless you actually think about that, and of course, the size of the learning journey is somewhat directly proportional to the amount of tools and number of tools you want to impart, right? If I wanted to teach somebody to think about the audience that they're talking to and modify what they say accordingly, and that was literally the only thing that I cared about in their education. Well, I wouldn't need a four-year curriculum to do that, right? You'd probably you'd introduce the concept, you'd be able to cross-contextualize it. Yeah, you know, after a few weeks or months of practice, somebody should be able to be pretty good at doing that, assuming that, again, they're engaged in all the rest of the world, which we'll get to in a second. But if you start thinking about, well, boy, there are all these components that I want to teach. You know, we've already talked about some of them. Wow, that's a much heftier curriculum. We teach about 80 in our approach. And 
we start with 80, we add a half a dozen more midway through, we scaffold them all together. It's a rather involved approach, but it is programmatic in its nature. And again, it's cross-subject. And that just in and of itself is a radical departure from any model of higher education that exists today, right? Which are either grounded in subject, right? You go and you study maths, right? Or you study physics in Cambridge or whatever, and that's all you study, right? So you study a subject matter. Or in the American model, you basically do a degraded version of that, your major, and then you take a bunch of edutainment, right? That is the purview of a random professor and what they decide to teach. And so the idea that you have to create a highly thought through curriculum that connects learning objectives where you, what you learn in one class shows up in another and that you cannot take that class without having at least a rudimentary understanding of these elements, that is a radical departure. So that's element number one. Element number two is that pedagogically, you have to ensure that the students are actually learning. So you have to effectively abandon the certification anti-learning model tests, right? Where you go and take a midterm, you take a final, and you get your grade, and then you proceed to quickly forget everything. This is why practically every 102 level class in higher education repeats what you learned in the 101 level class in the first month because the professor assumes that even though you just took it, you've learned nothing because they know that you've learned nothing. And so that means that pedagogically, no lectures, right? You consume information, you use social learning to apply, cement, right? And then to transfer. And you ensure that every single learner is actually cementing what they learn in their mind. So pedagogically, it's a big reformation. And then the third bucket is you've got to be able to give the students feedback, systematic, formative feedback, right? So you can't wait until halfway through the semester or at the end of the semester, tell a student, hey, you're getting this all wrong, right? Because you can have an amazingly structured curriculum where you're gonna have the students deeply engaged pedagogically, but if they're learning the wrong lessons, you have to intervene and have to intervene quickly. You have to give them positive reinforcement for their learning things, not only well, but maybe even having profound levels of insight. And so if you accept one, two, and three, the core implication is that you need data. Because without data, you can't, actually design a curriculum where you have student bodies that go through that have learned certain elements and therefore can go on these paths versus those paths. You cannot have truly engaged learners because you don't know if all the learners are actually engaged. You need data to tell you if they're indeed engaged. And of course, you have to have data because feedback is data. It's information about the learning process. And so fundamentally, there needs to be a data-mediated learning environment that enables those things to exist. If an institution of education, it has to be at an institutional level, accepts that approach, they're effectively providing a Minerva education. I like the scaffolded learning model that is customized based on each student's career pathway. I can't even imagine what goes into that. 
But I do have a question about the feedback because one of the issues that I see with the hybrid learning model or remote learning model is that it, at least with the way MOOCs are handled, there's a certain level of don't contact the professor no matter <laughs> what, right? That's bad pedagogy yeah. in every standard possible. The only way I can learn is if I engage with the professor or the teaching assistant, if that's what I have access to and engage with them. And whenever you have like a thousand member courses where a professor is teaching, which is really more something as a, on the whiteboard, just like they would in the classroom, and 10,000 students are just consuming that content. That's not really remote learning. But let's keep that aside. I want to understand exactly how Minerva does positive reinforcements and negative reinforcements. And I don't trust tests at all, ignore the midterms or finals. I understand that. But I always saw them as a way to understand or evaluate students' progress. That does not mean they are the right tool, but they're a tool. But I want to hear more about how Minerva does it, where if a professor or an advisor tries to intervene on a student's progress, how do they do that? What are the tools that they use to solicit feedback, share feedback, especially in a remote or online environment? Yeah, I mean, so I think that the key thing to understand is that the major dependent factor on your educational interaction has actually nothing to do with the modality through which you conduct the education, right? So I'll give you an example. Think of three different learning scenarios, okay? Learning scenario number one, you have a teacher in a lecture hall lecturing to 300 students. Scenario number two, you have a same teacher in a one-on-one -on -one tutorial with a student on a crackling fire, right, in their office. Scenario number three, you have that same teacher having a Zoom conversation with that student one-on-one -on -one to do their tutorial. Which two are most alike? One-on-one -on -one is always better. Correct, um, the second and, and third, the, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. The second and yeah. third are... I mean, maybe there's some difference. Maybe when you're in the office, the professor can pat you on the back. Maybe when you're in the office, the professor can make you feel uncomfortable if you're of a different power imbalance or what have you. There's harassment that can happen. Who knows, good or bad. But fundamentally, the interaction is, the determinant factor is, I have the professor's attention one-on-one -on -one for a determined period of time versus you have one professor that's lecturing. Now, the way that we talk about education, the first and second somehow get categorized in one bucket and the third get categorized in another, right? The first and second are offline education and the third is online education. Well, that makes no sense, right? Because it actually has nothing to do with each other. And in fact, what I would argue is that in almost every instance, online is superior to analog. Again, digital is broadly superior to analog. So again, think about the first scenario. A professor is lecturing to 300 students in the class. Compare that to a professor having pre-recorded that lecture and put it on YouTube, okay? Why, what is, why would that be superior to the offline lecture? Well, simply because of the fact that the student can then watch it whenever they want and they can pause and rewind. Already you have two features <laughs> that in a live lecture you do not have, right? Now, imagine that you can add to that 
a seminar or a recitation where you have a TA, right? So in the offline lecture, right? You, nobody asks the professor any questions, but you know, every once in a while, you've got a little 20 person group out of the 300 that goes in the TA and the TA can ask them questions, right? So what is the value of the TA asking, being asked questions live versus if they're in a digital environment? What if the digital environment actually allows the TA to say, you know what? That's a good question. Rather than me giving you the answer to that, why don't you talk amongst yourselves? I'm going to break you up into pairs or groups of four or five, and you guys discuss amongst yourselves, and then let's debrief. Now, in a physical room, that process of breaking up people into teams is chaotic and messy. Online, if you're in the right digital environment, you click a button, bam, everybody's in a breakout. So all of a sudden, there are elements that you can do online vastly better than you can do offline in almost every scenario. I mean, you can record the interaction and that's where the feedback comes in, right? If you actually have a systematic way of providing feedback, we use rubrics and we think that broadly they're correct, but we also tag the feedback in the context that it displays in. So we can actually give students not only rubric on depth of mastery of how they applied what they've learned, but also a breadth of application now. So say, oh, you're very good at applying this element of, or for example, thinking about audience when you deliver a, a point, but you're really good at it when you write a paper, you're terrible at it when you speak in class, right? Or you're very good at it in a history class or historical context, and you're really bad at it when you interpret literature. <laughs> Right. And for somehow you, you think that history is fully subjective and literally literature is always objective. Uh, who knows? I mean, that's a random example. Right. But you can provide a level of detailed feedback when you have digital information that you can then right. assess and systematically give students feedback on versus analog, where you may say something in class and it vanishes into the ether. And the professor, even if they're really good, if the tea is amazing, they can come to you after class and say, you know what, what you said back then was really insightful or boy, I really didn't like it. If they say I didn't like it, the student says, well, I didn't say that, <laughs> right? But when it's digital, we don't rely on our very fallible memory. And so mm -hmm. the reality is that in a digital environment, what matters is how you construct it. Right? And if you construct it for the purpose of education, then you create a decision points that are irrespective of digital or analog, which is about student-faculty ratios, interactions, availability. Now you've got an optimal opportunity, right? And so whereas in an offline, in an analog world, you're always limited, whereas in a digital world, you're almost always unlimited. It all depends on what you invest in that infrastructure and that environment and the decision points you make. So again, at Minerva University, as an example, 100% of our classes are fewer than 20 students. We're the only highly selective university in the world that can say that. Not Harvard, not Williams, not Amherst, certainly not Wharton, has even close to that student interaction. Now, other universities will hide behind statistics, assuming that the people seeing them are uneducated, which basically they are and their students are. And they'll say things that are irrelevant, like, oh, 80% of our classes have fewer than 20 students. But if you actually understand statistics, that means that the majority of classes that you will take will be in large classes. Because yeah, 80% of your classes are small, but the fact that 20% of your classes are huge 
means that the percentage of credits that you issue as an institution are in large classes, right? And therefore, the majority of, of classes that I take will be in large classes. Now, when you have 100% of your classes, you have fewer than 20, you can't hide behind statistics because it's the entire set. There is a substantive decision. Now, again, any university can decide we're going to go and invest all of our resources in having small classes. But it is also rational for a lot of universities to say, well, we just can't afford that. We're trying to keep costs down. We're trying to do things like that. And so then you think about, well, how can I make large classes more engaging? Right? And again, there are tools that you can use in digital learning environments that are vastly superior to analog environments. And in fact, the delta between the quality of large classes using digital versus using analog is substantially higher than the delta of small classes in digital versus analog, despite the fact that there's a substantial delta between digital analog and small classes as well. I think the only issue that I have with digital environment is probably the same as if you have an analog environment. If an instructor is a terrible instructor and Absolutely. puts the kids to sleep in analog environment, that instructor will put them to sleep in a digital environment. That's but if a kid sleeps in a digital environment, maybe they can wake up and pause it, right. and rewind it in a digital <laughs> Watch the recording later. <laughs> but in an analog environment, they can. So I do love what you're doing with Minerva. I want to talk to you a little bit about the latest trends I'm seeing and to see how you are seeing them as well. Like, for example, I always thought that the game-based learning is something that can truly take off as we start becoming more and more remote-only learning or hybrid-only learning model. Where you see some technologies like game-based learning or AI or ML for detecting students' progress or evaluating which environment they can be successful at? I am confounded by the lack of progress in, in that space. When I was starting to work in the education sector 11 years ago. My assumption was that all information dissemination would be eaten up by adaptive learning, which you can gamify. Certainly is all about machine learning. If you add AI into it, that's effective even better, but that's probably a little bit more science fiction-y right now. And at the very least, you'd have things like math, and there wouldn't be a math class anywhere on the planet because it's patently obvious that you shouldn't yep. learn math socially. <laughs> you should learn it in an adaptive way. I mean, the products exist-ish in some ways, but they have simply not been adopted and utilized by institutions. And because of that, the quality of the products isn't particularly good. It's kind of a vicious cycle. I don't understand. It's not my world. My world is social learning. We go and tell the students, go and do your, your readings and make sure that you come prepared. I'd much rather that we were able to point to tools that would make them better prepared, but we've not found... Certainly yeah, but it can be a hybrid. You know, I think that's where you talk about nuance or dichotomy. It doesn't have to be either game-based learning or social right. learning or either analog learning or digital learning. That's right. The things that make us successful is when you integrate them together so that it is most effective. Because, yeah, I mean, even with a game-based learning setting, a student can go through the gamification model and they get stuck in a certain module right. and they want to say, I want to initiate a conversation with my teaching assistant or an instructor and they are available just like we have here on a Zoom call. So That's right. That and unfortunately, it's done very poorly. I mean, my, my daughter, beginning in third grade, fourth grade, 
I think third grade, started studying math on IXL, which is an adaptive learning math, you know, assigned by her school. But it was basically a substitute for assigning problem sets at home. It yeah. was a de minimis uh, delta. It wasn't integrated. There wasn't this kind of live intervention. Boy, I'm really not getting this. Or it wasn't a, huh, you're making the same mistake repeatedly or you're taking a long time. Let's pause and explain it again, right? Or, or give you a different basic pedagogical uh, approaches. It just weren't incorporated. And I don't know why it's so bad. I think I know why, because I think there are two, if you look at Silicon Valley, the people that are building at tech software, and again, not to be too broad stroke here, are the people who are coming from educational background wants to build technology. What we want to do is Silicon Valley programmers or gamers to build educational software, not education curriculum developers building technology. That's why the technology is kind of weak, but I think it's just a matter of finding one of the right you know, investor or a, a tech entrepreneur that will build a chasm. Obviously the biggest issue that people stay away from, especially Silicon Valley investors, is probably because there's not enough money or whatever, but that's for a later episode. We'll deal with that. But I do agree the reason why, like even the adaptive learning, when California had this NCLB initiative, there was a big chunk of the money that was for adaptive learning. And they built a bunch of adaptive software and they were so bad. The, the adaptiveness of that software is when a student answers a question, they have to answer another question saying, was this too hard or was this easy? And based on <laughs> how they say it, they can get yeah. to the next question. It's like, yeah. that's not adaptive. Adaptive yeah. is you evaluate their answer and compare it to baseline and make sure that you give them the right question that meets their position. But I think that's a longer term discussion. I love what you're doing with Minerva and I, I love all the discussion we had. Unfortunately, we are starting to get to the top of the hour here. I wanted to hear from you on first-hand basis on where you see education going. Do you see other universities adapting the Minerva process or do you see Minerva entering other technology transformations or disruptions? Where do you see higher education going or where do you see Minerva going in the next 10, 15 years? Well, I mean, I see them highly interlinked. We are absolutely seeing adoption of Minerva's approach in universities now all over the world, working with universities in the United States and half a dozen other countries around the globe. And we're just starting. Really, up until a couple of years ago, all we were doing was running our own university and demonstrating to the world what can be done. And it was really only during COVID that, and really only during the latter parts of COVID, really over the past 12 months that we've been engaging with our university saying, okay, you've been exposed to the world. The whole world has seen how bad your education is. Now think about the long run. Forget about the short run. Think about the long run. How do you reform? How do you embrace a new kind of education? Here's how we can help you do that. And so despite the fact that it's very early days for us, the reception that we've been getting has been phenomenal. And that will mean that higher education is going to start to bifurcate. They're going to be institutions that are going to actually educate their students. And then there are institutions that will continue to not educate their students. Up until now, no university educated their students. So it was kind of an easy position. You didn't have to really compete. What you had to compete on was how smart are your incoming students? And depending on how smart your incoming students are, 
That's how smart your outgoing students are. As long as you didn't do any real damage, right? You could just lie back, hide in a corner and say, look how great we are, right? Because inputs were 100% causal to outputs. It wasn't correlated, it was 100% causal. All of a sudden, you're going to have a bifurcation where inputs aren't the primary determinant of output. And that will shake higher education to its core, right? And for those institutions that are going to wait for that shakeout to come around, they're going to suffer tremendous damage to their reputation, to their viability, to their place. And those institutions that are now leapfrogging, whether they do it with us or not, are going to be the ones that are going to be the absolute winners in whatever metric they want, prestige, number of students, viability and health of the institution, respect by employers, research grants, they're going to follow leaders as higher education always does. And so I believe that over the next one to two decades, you are going to see a redefinition of who the leaders of education are. And it will, for the first time in nearly a century, be driven by how well they educate as opposed to all of these other nonsense factors that are currently contributing. I like the concept of, even though we talked about nuance a lot, I think I'm, I'm totally fine with taking a binary position here because ultimately it's about, we pay whatever money we pay to the universities to educate our students. If they're taking our money and if they're not educating us, you know, then there's something wrong with the business model. So I'm totally fine taking a binary position here saying, if I'm going to send my kid to your campus, either you educate them or not educate them. Because if you don't educate them, I don't want to pay you money. And I think we should take that binary position with higher education. Ben, it's been an incredible honor talking to you. I've learned so much on this podcast. You are welcome to my podcast anytime. Very much appreciated. Thank you so much for having me. Listeners, I'll post the show notes on Ben and Minerva Project and many much more on our Golden Jubilee episode when this released. Thank you so much for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Illuminate Higher Education, sponsored by End-to-End Services and our Illuminate app. If something we said today resonated with you, please subscribe, rate, and download our podcast and share this episode with your network. You can learn more about Illuminate app at illuminateapp.com and continue the conversation with us there. If there are any topics you'd like us to discuss further, please email them to us at podcast at n2nservices.com. That's podcast at n2nservices.com. Thank you.